Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Purest water make me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Well, I have something that I think is very important to share with you today one of the biggest plagues in Christianity is people who received rejection spirits through their relationship with their earthly parents and or inherited them through the bloodline and who now relate to their heavenly father or spiritual fathers in the faith in the same way because of these deceiving spirits and I know that this is also what spawned the faction movement. So uh, this revelation, which was sent to us by an anonymous person, whom I know, <laughs> um, we called it Rejection Lied, Father Loves Me. And um, Anonymous said, I hope this will help the saints not to fall into the same traps of Satan. I was sure it was sure an eye opener for me though. I wasn't realizing that the thoughts and feelings I was having were sinful and were grieving my heavenly Father. Most people don't recognize that feelings of unworthiness and self-pity or self-loathing, which are all side effects of rejection, are sin and contribute to fear, doubt, and unbelief. Oh, and if you've got doubt and unbelief and fear, you are not going to be receiving the benefits that the Father has for you. That's why it's so important that we learn to do spiritual warfare and cast down vain thoughts and imaginations that are against the word of God, as we're told in Second Corinthians chapter 10. And Anonymous goes on to say, they create a huge gulf between us and the saving power and deliverance of Jesus and keep us from receiving the gifts of God. This is so true, so true. I feel there are two manifestations of rejection. There may be more than two, uh, but I know that rejection is the root demon and that it branches off in different directions sometimes. And what is said here is certainly correct that there are these two. She said one is that people lash out at others and defend themselves. And the other is that people turn inward on themselves in the, in the form of self-loathing and unworthiness. Well, if you're one of these people, <clears throat> we have authority, if you recognize this, uh, to cast these spirits out. And we do. We cast these spirits and their thoughts down from all who agree with the good news that Jesus bore this curse on the cross. So, saints, you believe it, you receive it. You reach out and take the gift from God. It's not important how it's stated or how you receive it. It's just your gift from heaven. 
And Anonymous went on to say, I believe these issues go along with unforgiveness even of oneself. I think there may be others besides me who have forgiven everyone except themselves. Oh, there are many. There are many. Unforgiveness of oneself or of Father God or even of spiritual fathers causes many much grief and gives the devil authority over us. Absolutely. Saints, I know if you're one of them, you know exactly what we're talking about. Don't let pride, don't let unforgiveness, don't let criticism stop you or separate you from God and His ministers. And don't let it stop you from being all you can be in the Lord. You know, cast down pride. Confess your sins one to another. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And your life will be totally different without that spirit of rejection, fear of rejection, criticism, pride, those things that come from it. Father has shown me in this dream that now it is time to forgive myself. I believe Father has shown me that this has been a main block to overcoming and receiving healing for trials and temptations. Yes, and and I pray that the Father will give you or show you love and grace and forgiveness to all who have this need today. You know, I just, Father, we just ask you to have mercy upon those who are suffering from this plague, this curse, Lord, that you would show your love and your grace to these people. In Jesus' name. Anonymous said, There may be other things, but Father is being faithful to reveal these things to me, and I know he loves me in my head, but I desire to know it in my heart also. And this is where that hindrance of rejection is, is in your heart, in your thoughts. And we pray that all who hear these words and have a need to feel the love of the Father, that they will receive this today in Jesus' name. And, of course, we're going to post this revelation uh, with a, a bunch of links below it that will help anybody that needs help in this direction. Anonymous says, It is his will that I be perfect in health. And I know he will be with me every step of the way and that I will have a great testimony at the end. Well, I agree. In the name of Jesus Christ, I agree. I dreamed that I was in a white surveillance van parked outside of the home of an old Middle Eastern man who was a doctor. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And Anonymous believes that this represents Jehovah Rapha, our healer. Amen. This is surely Jesus Christ who repairs broken lives and bodies, right? His home was my childhood home. Well, that sounds strange, doesn't it? But no, many people's hurts start in their childhood. But our healer was there. And he knows of these hurts. And he is meeting those needs today. 
I remember that this house faced the east, which is, of course, the coming of the sun in our lives, S-O-N. Ephesians 2, 19-22 says, So then you are no more strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, not your earthly household, the household of God, who is a perfect Father, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom each several building, fitly framed together, groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. By the way, this is something that is not possible with the spirit of rejection. It's impossible to be one with the body of Christ. It's impossible to be one with a wife or a husband who has a spirit of rejection. They are afraid to get close to other people. There is a companion spirit called the fear of rejection that won't let them get close to people or they won't let people get close to them because of this fear. 22 goes on to say, In whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. I was watching the doctor closely through a pair of very powerful binoculars. I watched every move he made and studied all of his activities and his comings and goings. He was very predictable and seemed like a nice, gentle man. Hebrews 13 and 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yea and forever. When you study the Jesus of the Gospel, saints, that that's him, right? The one who went about meeting people's needs and uh, rebuking their oppressors, etc., etc. I was studying him from afar because I was fearful of him and concerned about his activities. Anonymous said, This represents trying to understand the Father through natural senses and finite understanding and assigning our own human nature and qualities uh, to our Heavenly Father. Trying to make Him into our image and trying to understand His ways through a human perspective. And this causes us to be fearful of God in the wrong kind of way. We cannot understand God through our own intellect. We need the Holy Spirit to understand anything about God and His ways. Yes, because the Holy Spirit is the one who knows God and He's the one who reveals God. God's foreordained plan is to transform us, starting at our beginning, which is the dirt, right? And he sows the seed in that dirt. That natural man, that natural life is the dirt. It is corrupt. It was inherited from our parents. But our natural life, which is the dirt, cannot be compared with the eternal seed of the sons of God that sowed in the dirt. 
All sons and daughters of God must be saved from sin so that they know and understand grace and, and God's unmerited favor. God didn't choose perfect people. He chose people that needed to be saved in order to, that they would understand grace, unmerited favor. They would understand mercy, right? They, because they would not deserve it. And they would know that. It's fertile ground for a seed of the Son of God, but you must reject the old man who is a product of these demons that are passed on down from generation to generation or inherited through your relationship with your parents. Either way, you have to reject that and those thoughts too because this is a lying spirit. Anonymous said, Jesus said, He that has seen me has seen the Father. Well, that's right. Jesus is giving heart. His kindness and graciousness to men exhibited in the Gospels is an example of our Heavenly Father's love for us. And He cries out to us, much like Isaiah 55 Six through nine says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Remember the story of the prodigal son, right? The father's arms were wide open, waiting for his trashed-up son to come home. And um, he met him with love, right? Verse 8 goes on to say, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. God didn't inherit the ways of men. He didn't inherit rejection. He doesn't have that. Men have that. And their fear of rejection. Verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Amen. He is high. He is holy. He is righteous. Don't forget it. Don't attribute evil to God. Don't attribute sin or the sin nature that you receive from your parents to God. He is a perfect father. And no, he's not a mother. <laughs> There's a lot of goofiness going on out there. But anyway, John 14, 8-10. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. us. And Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long a time with you, and dost thou not know me, Philip? He that hath seen me has seen the Father. How sayest thou, Show us the Father? Well, men would love to know the nature of the Father, and Jesus is saying, Look at me. I am his offspring. Look at me, and you'll know the Father. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I say unto you I speak not from myself, but the Father abiding in me doeth his works. 
So what we see when we read about Jesus' kindness and his love is we see the Father manifested through the Son. Anonymous went on to say, One day, when this kind doctor went out on an errand, I decided to go inside his house and find out what was inside and what he was doing in there. I thought he might be doing something to hurt the children. This represents viewing God as an angry and punishing father. Many, like myself, who have had this type of earthly father, may unconsciously project that experience onto our Heavenly Father. Yes, or spiritual fathers. It happens. I know the Lord has spoken to me and told me the reason that a person with rejection couldn't have a relationship with me is because they saw me as their Heavenly Father. That demon in them was speaking to them that I was just like their earthly father. So I know exactly what Anonymous' revelation here is about. And besides that, I inherited through the bloodline and through relationship to a spirit of rejection concerning my earthly father. And um, this unconsciously projecting that rejection experience onto our heavenly father is caused by a spirit of rejection that will keep you from an intimate relationship with the heavenly father and from being able to receive all the benefits that he has for you. Luke 11, 9 through 13 says, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. It sounds like our Father has a special relationship with us uh, to, to meet our needs, no matter what they are, uh, the fact that he loves us so much uh, that he would send Jesus to sacrifice his life to meet all of our spiritual and physical needs should say something to us. But these deceiving spirits are continually speaking in a person's mind uh, thoughts that are not his thoughts, as he said. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, unless, of course, you believe that you're unworthy and that God wouldn't do this for you. You listen to those lying spirits, right? Every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. How gracious, how undeserving we are of such things, right? And of which of you that is a father, shall his son ask a loaf, and he give him a stone, or a fish, and he give for a fish, give him a serpent. He for a fish, give him a serpent. Well, some people think that about God, you know. Or if he shall ask an egg, will he give him a scorpion? He's not going to give something that is evil or threatening to his child. We ask him for good things. That's what he's going to give us. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, 
how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Ask. Ask for His Holy Spirit. Not these evil spirits that have been inherited through the natural bloodline. Ask. Be filled with His Holy Spirit. Some people can't receive the Holy Spirit because they feel that they are unworthy. Well, in a way that's true, but we're counted as worthy through our faith. And really that's just a moot point, because if the Lord said it, He will do it. Anonymous said, When I went inside, I saw that he had a a bunch of servants. And in parenthesis, she has angels. And I add, too, that earthly ministers, too, are so. Servants just mean messengers, right? Or angels, excuse me, just means messengers, right? Who were preparing many gift packages out of the gifts that the doctor had made for the children. So our doctor, our physician, our great physician, actually physician is a bad word, and so is doctor, but we are the Lord is trying to relate to us to something that we know in this world, right? The truth is the word is healer, iatros, healer. The Lord is a healer. But the Lord wants you to see this parable of a doctor who wants to give gifts to his children. A healer who wants to give gifts to his children. They were wrapping them in clear cellophane wrapping and getting them ready for delivery. And we know from Hebrews 1, 13 and 14, But which of the angels hath he said at any time, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet? Are they not? all ministering spirits sent forth to do service for the sake of them that shall inherit salvation. Yes, these are the sons and daughters of God that these ministering spirits were created to serve, to bless, to deliver. Amen? He must love us very much. These gifts represent salvation through Jesus and the promises of Father in His Word to us. Romans 11, 28-32 says, As touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. In other words, when God's people have even gone astray from Him, they are beloved for the Father's sake. When the when the father in the parable of um, the prodigal son, when his son returned, he loved him just as much. He was much more relieved that he was now safe, but he loved him just as much because he was his son. Right? God has many sons and daughters out there doing their own thing. They're away from him into the curse not realizing that he already delivered them from all this. right? Verse 29, For the gifts and the calling of God are not repented of. For as ye in time past were disobedient to God, but now have obtained mercy by their disobedience. 
Even so have these also now been disobedient, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now obtain mercy. Amen. So God has from among the Jews and among the Gentiles children of his that will ultimately bear fruit. Amen. For God has shut up all unto disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. What does this mean? Well, it means that God only saves sinners because they understand mercy and grace. They don't deserve what they're receiving, yet they're receiving it from a merciful God. He wants to prove His love and His mercy and His grace. And God gives these gifts in manifold ways to bestow upon the needy. In other words, He makes us spiritual fathers too. You know, in Romans 12, 6-8, Paul said, And having gifts differing, According to the grace that was given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith, or ministry, let us give ourselves to our ministry, or he that teacheth to his teaching, or he that exhorteth to his exhorting, he that giveth, let him do it with liberality, He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Amen. The gifts were all over the house, on tables, and along the floors, next to the walls. I was surprised at all these wonderful gifts that he had prepared, and, and then I felt ashamed. I had thought that he meant to do harm to the children and that I didn't trust him. Then I realized that so many of these gifts had been sitting in their places for a long time because many of the children felt the same way towards the doctor that I had felt. And I thought to myself, if only they could see these gifts. Well, think about that, saints. God has so many things to give you. He's made so many awesome promises. All things whatsoever you pray and ask for, believe you received them, and you shall have them. He's made tremendous promises to give you His gifts. Not only of the ministry gifts, but the gifts of His life and His love to you. If only they could see these gifts. They've been sitting there waiting for so long because people felt the same way that Anonymous felt here towards the doctor, that he was a hard person. Then my husband, and I believe that this represents Jesus, came up behind me and encouraged me to go lay down and rest on the large king-size bed that was in the middle of the living room. I guess that represents the rest. Jesus wants us to enter into the rest, which is what? According to Paul in Hebrews, it's believing the promises. You don't have a problem. The Lord has supplied all of your needs through His promises. We just need to believe, right?
And I was still fearful of the doctor because, even though I saw all the wonderful gifts that he had prepared for the children, I felt that he didn't intend any of those gifts for me. And I thought he would be angry at me for intruding into his house and doubting his person. And uh, they said, this is a representative of a lying spirit of rejection. If we listen to these lies, it will keep us from receiving all of the gifts that the Father has intended us to have. Amen. Amen. Hebrews 4 and 2 says, For indeed we have had good tidings preached unto us, even as also they. But the word of hearing did not profit them, because it was not united by faith with them that heard. The word of the promise is useless to many people because they don't think it's for them. It's always for someone else. They think that's who God will give it to, someone else. But no, it's your fault because you don't believe him, because you have believed a lying spirit. You're not casting down um, that imaginations that are against the knowledge of God. So I decided to lay on my right side get this, underneath the bed, not on the bed of rest, but underneath the bed. My husband was disappointed and didn't agree with this, but he loved me so much that he still went and laid next to me under the bed with his arm around me to bring comfort and peace to me. Isn't that just like Jesus? Well, many are living beneath their privilege and relationship with Jesus. We are sons and daughters of God through Him. He has provided all things for us, including His love, His mercy, and His grace. Romans 8, 35-39 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or anguish, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Does this mean these things when they come, if they come? Does this mean that the Lord does not love us? No. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall any of these things? No. Even as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. I can hear somebody saying, you see there? <laughs> we were accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No, <clears throat> we endure the death of the old man of self so that we might be with God. So that we might think as he thinks and live as he lives. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Nothing can separate you from his love. The underneath of the bed was very high up so that I could sit up underneath it and there was a blue transparent bed skirt that I could see the front door and the rest of the living room through. In other words, I believe that the place of rest on the top of the bed is high up in heavenly places. Laying underneath represents being overcome by our carnal mind, Anonymous says. Romans 8 and 6. For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. If what you're thinking is not giving you life and peace, it's the mind of the flesh. If what you're thinking robs you of the benefits of the kingdom that you see other people around you enjoying, it's probably a spirit of rejection and fear of rejection, feelings of unworthiness, and so on and so forth, self-hatred, etc., etc. I then saw the doctor come in through the front door. I watched his every move while laying under the bed through the transparent bed skirt. My husband gently said to me, Let's get out from under here. It's okay. It's safe. So I came out from under the bed, but I couldn't face the doctor. He knew that my thoughts, he knew what my thoughts were, and saw the brokenness of my being. He knew I felt unworthy of his gifts and his love, and this saddened him. He longed for me to come to him and receive his love with open arms. Hebrews 3 and 17 says, But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? Anonymous says, Fear, doubt, and unbelief are sin, and it grieves the Father. Spirits of rejection, self-loathing, self-pity, and unworthiness hide very well in religion and in those who are under the law and self-works. We must not forget that it is the sacrifice of our Savior and the grace of the Father that we are counted worthy and reckoned as righteous. Well, amen. This is what we must believe for deliverance. We must believe the gospel. The Lord took everything through the reconciliation. He took everything negative about what we received through the bloodline, the natural bloodline. He took it upon himself and he gave us his blood, his righteous blood, his pure blood. No sin in his blood. No demons in his blood. He made reconciliation, which means an exchange of his life for ours. He delivered us out of the power of darkness. We no longer have to submit to spirits of rejection. I went out and sat on the front porch on the first step. I was feeling hopeless when suddenly I saw the doctor's hand place a love letter to my right on the step next to me. She said, The Word of God is his love letter to us and all his promises in it. This is always the first step to victory over the enemy and his lies.
Well, amen. Let your be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You, we have to think right. Folks, we, we come to him with a virus in our pro- computer program, and it needs to be cleansed, right? We read the Word of God. We read it day and night. We put his words before our mind. We let them be on our tongue so that we can have what he has. She said, I looked at it. It was in a white business envelope with my name written on it with fancy lettering like calligraphy. I then looked away from it as tears rolled down my face and a pain went through my heart. I was afraid to read it and afraid to accept his love. Then the evil voice of rejection told me that if I opened it, there would be nothing but rebukes and words of rejection and condemnation. Self-pity said that I didn't need any more of that in my life. And self-loathing said, How could you even think that he could love you? All the while, my spirit man inside knew how special I was to the doctor. But the lies of the enemy were casting me down, discouraging me, and making me feel unworthy. And, I might say, so that that they would have no faith towards God and miss out on all of his benefits as the demons plotted to do. Amen. I wanted to leave the letter there, unopened, and slide down a yellow slide that appeared now in front of me off of the porch. A yellow slide. You reckon that has anything to do with fearfulness or being chicken? <laughs> As we say, yeah, too afraid to accept this gift. That's called the fear of rejection. My husband appeared behind me and again told me, please, don't go. Open the letter. It's a love letter just for you. He wrote it just for you. Can't you see how much he loves you? You are so special to him. I could see past my husband and through the wall of the house that the doctor was sad that I was ignoring his special letter that he had written just for me. I wanted to believe so much that I was special to him. But at the same time, I was afraid to let myself believe it because I was afraid that my trust in him would be betrayed. That's fear of rejection again. And that eventually he would turn on me in a punishing way. That's fear of rejection, fear of failure, etc., etc. It's an evil spirit. It plagues the people of God. And when I woke up, I I knew that I was making Father sad because I wasn't trusting him for his gift of healing and deliverance from the enemy and that I needed to get back into his word to renew my mind daily and remind myself of his love for me. Amen. Get into his love letter. Let it get down in your heart and heal you. 
of all those wounds that were put there by demon spirits. No, don't blame the other person. They just are suffering probably the same things from their parents on down. They were victims too. Pity them. Don't be angry or unforgiving towards anyone who unknowingly or un- in being incapable of loving because of these spirits. Ephesians 6, 16 and 17 says, With all, taking up the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You know what a helmet is for, right? It's to protect your mind, right? The helmet of God's salvation. He saved you from the very things that are being spoken in your mind by these evil spirits. And use your sword of the Spirit. They cannot resist the sword of the Spirit. Use it on them. No. Thus saith the Lord. And you stick them with that sword. The Word of God, right? I asked the Father for a verse or a text uh, through faith at random for this dream. And he, he couldn't have picked a better love letter. My finger landed on Psalm 40 and 11. But here it is in context. Psalm 40 and 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear, and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust. O Amen. O Amen. Let it be, Lord. And respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonderful works which Thou hast done, and Thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be set in order unto Thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. But so many are not partaking of the benefits of all of God's good desires for us. Sacrifice and offering thou hast no delight in. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings hast thou not required. In the natural, that is. Then said I, Lo, I am come. In the roll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. That's what makes us delight to do His will. God writes His law upon our heart. When we read the Word of God, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great assembly. Lo, I will not refrain my lips, O Lord, Thou knowest. Amen. 
It's good news, saints. That's what it's called, the good news. Amen. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great assembly. Withhold not thou thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have overtaken me, so that I am not able to look up. That is just like the spirit of rejection and fear of rejection. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart hath failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and confounded together that seek after my soul to destroy it. Innumerable demon spirits seek to destroy your soul. All they have to do is write their words upon your heart, your mind, your thoughts, instead of you writing God's word upon your mind and your thoughts. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Believe God. Don't believe the demons. We inherited some of these from our parents and or we received them through relationships and things that we went through, you know. Either way, the Lord loves us and He wants to save us from all of these things. We have to believe His Word. We have to put this Word into our mind enough so that it overcomes those things that we've inherited that are in there, right? Let them be turned backward and brought to dishonor that delight in my hurt. Yes, amen. Let them be desolate by reason of their shame that say unto me, Aha, aha, let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon me. Thou art my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O my God. Yea, amen, amen. God loves you, saints. You didn't come to the Father on your own. He chose you and caused you to approach unto Him, the Bible says. He drew you with his love. I'm going to put some other links on this revelation and and uh, Brad will post them and I hope you'll pay attention to all these if you've ever had any any dose of this rejection or fear of rejection or unworthiness or whatever. Any of these things. And uh, one of them is a letter to a prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son, right? went out into the world and basically disgraced his father. But his father was ready to receive him when he came back, repented, and grieved at his actions. Another is called uh, Freedom of Forgiveness. How that um, a person whose parents 
had rejection, and they did too. How that when they forgave, the spirit, the spirit's power in their family was broken, and um, deliverance from rejection and its fear, which is um, my own experiences of with rejection and uh, explanations of a couple of branches of uh, rejection and how to be delivered from it by faith in God. It's very simple. But it's too good to be true to some people. However, some have read this and, and obeyed and acted in faith and been delivered. Again, let me say this. If you've been delivered of rejection in its fear and you have unforgiveness towards other people, it will come back. You must, you must forgive everybody. If you refuse to do that, you are not forgiven. If you are not forgiven, the curse is on you. You're not forgiven for your past sins, therefore you cannot be cleansed for your past sins. You must forgive. Jesus said, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. People try to twist this, but it's just simply not twistable. And another one article we're going to put here is seeing others through eyes of faith. That is, we are to see other people through our faith for them. That is, we're supposed to exercise faith for others just like we exercise faith for ourselves. And in doing this, our, our mind and our thoughts and our emotions change towards these people. When we pray... Jesus said, when you pray, all things whatsoever you pray and ask for, believe you received them and you shall have them. When you pray for people, people that you may have had past resentment for or bitterness for, when you pray for them and you're believing for them, and you know that this is the only way that they have of ever getting delivered of these spirits that are taking advantage of them, when you're doing this, you're changing your mind towards them. So pray and believe for them. Believe for the salvation that God gave to you freely, even though you were unworthy. That salvation that he gave to you, he will give to them as unworthy as they are. Right? Man, God is so good. Father, we thank you. We pray, Lord, that um, that you will deliver your people who are listening, who so desire to be free from these um, demonic bondages. Father, they know, they know that this has ruined their relationship with other people, ruined their relationship with um, you, ruined their relationship with ministers of the gospel who love them they know that these things have happened Lord and I ask you Father to send forth your grace and your mercy and grant repentance and send your delivering power to them we know Lord that because of what Jesus did at the cross that we were already delivered from the power of darkness who delivered us out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. He delivered us. It is done. We are to accept it, speak it, thank God for it, 
Praise Him for it. It is done. You've been freed, saints. He made you free from sin. Romans chapter 6. I think he said that about three times there. He made you free from sin. He nailed your sin upon that cross. That is the thing that demons take advantage of, is the sin nature. But they have nothing if you give it up to the cross. He nailed it on the cross. He gave you his life at the cross. So, Father, we are thanking you for moving mightily in the hearts and minds of the saints out there and touching them and meeting their needs and um, sending them to people who can agree in faith with them that they are delivered and speak the words of faith over them if necessary. Or go to our, our page on the site called Deliverance from Rejection and Its Fear. And pray those prayers and agree with them. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you do a mighty work in delivering your people out of bondage to Satan so they may be free. Many husbands and wives are estranged from one another because of spirits of rejection. Nobody with a spirit of rejection can be one with anyone else. It's just not possible. They usually get resentment. They hear things that are not true. They believe things that are not true. They don't exercise faith for their mate or their mother or their father or their children. There will be a separation of children from the parents who have rejection. This is a destroyer of families. It is a faction all in itself, even though there is another spirit called faction that obviously quite often joins with rejection to destroy people's lives. So, Father, we're thanking you for the grace that we have received through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hello, saints. Good to be back with you again. Let's go to the Lord. Father God, I just praise you and I glorify you, Lord, for your holiness and the work that you're doing in each one of us to perfect us. And Lord, we thank you for your faith that you've given us. You said the, the faith the size of a mustard seed would move mountains. And Lord, uh, we thank you that uh, we believe your word. We believe every word of your word. And uh, Father, we just thank you for giving those revelations to us about what faith in prayer is. And I praise you, Father, for doing that today. You know, there's a lot of denominations out there today that deny <clears throat> that miracles are for this age. And if you deny that miracles are for this age, you deny the need and the privileges and the benefits of prayer. The twofold value of prayer lies first in sitting in his presence or in direct fellowship with the Father. And the second benefit is the answer that comes to us. John says, if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the petitions which we have asked. For God the Father to hear my prayer, that's equivalent to his answering it. Now, for God to hear me is a miracle. But for God to answer my prayer regardless of a nature is a miracle. 
And whether my petition is for a postage stamp or for a million dollars, it's still a miracle. Any divine intervention, any arrest of the laws of nature that comes in answer to faith is a miracle. If prayer brings an answer, that answer is a miracle. It is then that faith has its true place in our lives. And the instant that you say there are no miracles in this dispensation, you deny that our walk is a walk by faith. And you declare that our walk is a walk by reason. I challenge you right now to find one place where God tells us as believers to walk by reason. God is a faith God. We are a faith family. We're all born by faith. We live by faith, and by faith we live, breathe, and have our being in Christ. If there are no miracles, then there ain't no reason for faith. If there are no miracles, God can't answer prayer because he can't answer prayer of any character that is not a miracle. And you men and women out there that tell us that you believe the Bible to be the word of God, that it is God-breathed and without error in the original, and then in the same breath, tell me that the day of miracles is past. You're the most illogical thinkers, the most inconsistent believers that the devil ever deluded. And I believe profoundly that the devil is the deceiver of the whole inhabited earth and of that type of Christian in particular. So let's come back to God, okay? Let's take our place. If we pray at all, we expect our prayers to be answered. And if that prayer is answered, God's done it. And if God has answered prayer, he has performed something outside of the realm of reason. And we have to give up our prayer life utterly, or we won't have to believe in miracles. I believe in miracles. I believe in divine intervention. I believe that the prayer of faith reaches God, our Father, and when it reaches Him, He acts in response to that faith. And when He acts in response to our faith, His action is above our reason. It's in the realm of miracles. Glory to God. And for me to deny the privilege and benefits of prayer would raise a storm of protest among those who deny miracles today. And I want you to see, brethren, as you listen today, that your position is untenable. Faith causes a man to act like God. Love makes him like God. Prayer is an excursion into the supernatural realm. You are in the throne room in the presence of God of all ability, and he has promised to hear your petition and to give you your request. You have come on the ground of his word. He said, whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. You understand that the words that Jesus spoke were his Father's words. So you come now with the Father's words in your lips and you're making your appeal on the ground of his own word. You're not a servant. You're not a slave, folks. You're a son. You are taking Jesus' place, acting in his stead, doing the Father's will. You know that you are the Father's will, just as Jesus was the Father's will, because of his own will, he begat you. 
You are the fruit of his own word. You came into being by his own power and ability, and you have received eternal life, his very nature, and you recognize your place in Christ. You're acting the part of a son. The great unsaved world has to know what he has done for them in Christ. And so you're taking his ability, doing your part in the saving of men as Jesus did his part. You belong to a supernatural order of being, whether you recognize it or not, whether you have taken your place or not. You have the ability of the indwelling presence. You have the wisdom that Jesus had in his earth walk because Jesus had been made unto you wisdom. And you can think of yourself as linked up with ability and linked with omnipotence. And you remember, he said, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Now, I know that sense knowledge, reasoning, shrinks from this. But here's where the challenge of grace leads you. We dare to take our place, dare confess what we are, dare confess that he made us what we are, that we can do what he says we can do because he is at work within us. We have his word that he's in us. The latent ability and energy within us is his who gave it to us. And this makes the prayer life a masterful thing. You're not asking for the possible. You are always praying for the impossible. You are asking for things that can't be done by any human method. Fasting and long hours of prayer don't build faith. Reading books about faith and about men of faith and their exploits stirs in the heart a deep passion for faith, but it doesn't build faith. The word alone is the source of faith, but the word will not build faith unless it becomes a part of us. If you abide in me and my words have their place in you, that is, they have their place in our conduct. Jesus gave us the key. He said, the words that I speak are not mine, but my father's. And the works that he did were not his, but his father's. Jesus acted on his father's words. Jesus never needed faith. He had it unconsciously. Faith is built in us by the word being built into us, by our acting upon the word. And it's the word of faith. And so as the father builds that into us in our daily walk, faith becomes an unconscious asset. And we come to realize that we're part of him as a branch is a part of the vine. That he is a part of us as the vine is a part of the branch. That we have his life and we have his ability. We have his love nature and we have his strength. That gives us an unconscious certainty as we go into his presence. We know that we're working together with him to one common end. And we know that he is the strength of our life. And we know that he is our ability. And we know that we are his righteousness in Christ. And we know that he needs us to carry out his will. And so we're taking our place as a son, carrying out his dream for man. There can't be a real prayer life that's not built upon the word. The word is the source of all faith. And that faith must be a quiet assurance, an unconscious faith, 
something that you don't even think about. You can't conceive of Jesus saying to himself, can you? If I only had faith. Men and women who have really wrought and done mighty things have been those who had never thought about their faith life. The word was a reality. What he said solved the problem. This word is revelation knowledge. It's God wanting to speak with man. Now, first, there must be a reality of the incarnation. John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation can't be a doctrine or a theory or a metaphysical concept. It has to be as real as your birth is to you. And it's, it's not something that you argue about, but it is an absolute fact that God has broken into the human realm and has given to the senses a testimony of his reality. A lot of us have reveled in his earth wall following him step by step in his miraculous career. We were thrilled at the demonstrations of divine ability that characterized him in every crisis. He faced a dead Lazarus as simply as you and I would face any ordinary event in life. He was perfectly quiet in the midst of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He walked on the waves that night in the tumult of a raging storm as quietly as you walk up and down on the sidewalk in front of your home. There was a royalty about his faith, a divine dignity that thrills us. But what does that resurrection mean? It means that the sin problem was settled, that Satan was conquered, humanity humanity was redeemed, that God can now on legal grounds impart his nature, eternal life to man and make him a new creation. At last, Man can become God's actual child, a very son, and there can be perfect fellowship between them. You know, when God imparted his nature to man, he imparted his righteousness also. So man is a partaker of the divine nature and the righteousness of God. Man can stand in the Father's presence as did Jesus in his earthly walk. Now God can give the Holy Spirit to live permanently in the body of this new creation. And he can build into that new creation through the word, the very character and nature of the incarnate one, so that we can say softly, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And now we know that Romans 4 and 25 is a reality who was delivered up on the account of my trespasses and raised because I was justified. Praise God. The church has had a theological conception of our redemption. It has never been a part of our daily walk. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, who delivered us out of the authority of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have our redemption. And Ephesians 1 verse 7 says that that redemption is according to the riches of his grace. And in the mind of the Father, that redemption is a reality. 
And it would have been a total failure otherwise. That redemption meant that Satan had been utterly defeated, stripped of his authority and dominion, so that man, any man, no matter what his condition has been, how deeply he has been enmeshed in sin, it don't make any difference, can by the whispering of the name of Jesus and by confessing his lordship, step out of bondage into perfect liberty. Glory to God. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, or Satan shall not lord it over you. It has made the new man, the new creation, a master of sin. In the name of Jesus, the weakest child of God is an absolute master of Satan and demons. Glory to God. You who have received eternal life, as you listen, you can whisper, I am free. The Son has made me free, and I am free indeed. That redemption is a reality to the man who knows his place in Christ. You cannot be in Christ and not be free from the dominion of the devil. What substitutions we have had for the new creation. We've called it forgiveness of sin, being converted, getting religion, joining the church, and a whole bunch more. It was just one thing. You are a new creation, a child of God, a partaker of the divine nature. And these all represent the one fact that you have passed out of death, satanic nature, into life, the realm of God. And that's not just forgiveness of sin, but it's an impartation of a new nature. The old self, the old man was crucified with Christ. A new man was resurrected, and when you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and confessed him as Lord, God imparted his own nature, eternal life, to you. And you became a new species, a new man over which Satan has no dominion whatsoever. It is one of the greatest gifts the church has ever had been given to her, and how little we have appreciated it. Before Jesus left us, he gave to the church a legal right to use his name. John 15 and 16 says, Whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. John 16, 23 and 24. And in that day you shall not pray to me. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if you shall ask anything of the Father, he will give it to you in my name. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive that your joy may be made full. And here he gives us the power of attorney to go to the Father and make our requests. And when you pray in that name, it's just though Jesus prayed, and there can be no denial. You remember Jesus said at the tomb of Lazarus, I thank thee, Father, that thou dost always hear me. And that is the ground for your assurance right there. John 14, 13, 14. He, he gives us in this the use of the name. He says, and whatsoever you shall ask or demand in my name, 
that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you shall ask anything in my name, that will I do. Folks, that's not a prayer. This is described in Acts chapter 3 and verse 6, where Peter and John heal a man at the beautiful gate by saying this, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And it's just like Paul used it in Acts chapter 16 and verse 18, where he spoke to the demon and the girl said, In the name of Jesus, come out of her. Or as the name was used on the day of Pentecost, when they baptize those people in the name of Jesus. You know, when we pray, we say, Our Father in Jesus' name. And that's the approach that he's given. That gives us the assurance of a hearing. Jesus said, recorded in John chapter 14, verse 17, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he said, He is with you, but he shall be in you. And on the day of Pentecost, we see four things take place in that upper room. Suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the room where they were sitting. The disciples were immersed in the Holy Spirit. And when they were immersed, they received eternal life and were made new creations. They were the first people aside from Jesus that were ever born again. Jesus, as you already know, is the firstborn. Now, the second thing that happened, tongues of fire set upon the brow of each one of them, indicating that method of propagating this gospel of the grace of God. It's going to be with tongues of fire. You remember Stephen's tongue couldn't be withstood. He had a tongue of fire. So they had to kill him to get rid of his tongue of fire. And the third thing, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. He couldn't come in until they were recreated. And the fourth, they all spake with other tongues. But I want you to notice that the great thing was they had not only received eternal life, but they had the one who had raised Jesus from the dead now living in them. We've made a great deal of receiving the Holy Spirit. And it has been major, and we have ignored the fact of his being in us. First John 4 and 4, 144. Ye are of God, my little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. For it is God who is at work within you, willing and working his own good pleasure. Not only are we born again, have become the very sons and daughters of God, but he comes and makes his home in us. That's a reality, folks. The ministry has kept the church in the bondage of sin consciousness ever since the last Reformation. And none of us have ever been able to get away from it. Most of our hymns are about sin. Most every sermon is about sin. And the church has never known of her absolute freedom from sin consciousness. It would do us well to study Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, very carefully. We don't have, I don't have time to quote it all. First, it tells how the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. For if it could, the worshipers have been once cleansed, would have no more consciousness of sin. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance made of sins year by year. That reminds me of the altar services where we ask the believer to keep coming Sunday after Sunday to be cleansed from sin. The blood of Jesus Christ hasn't meant more to some of us than the blood of bulls and goats meant to the Jew. For it was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. And the 11th verse, And every priest stands day by day ministering and offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, for by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. The Lord Jesus Christ dealt with the sin problem for us perfectly when we were recreated and received the nature and life of God. At that time, he not only put our sin away, but he remitted all that we had ever committed. And at the same time, he imparted his own nature and righteousness to us. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, Him who knew no sin, God made to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And by that new creation, we have become the righteousness of God. Glory to God. So Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 has become a reality. It says that he, that's God, might himself be righteous and the righteousness of him who has faith in Jesus. Uh, Well, here God declares that he becomes the righteousness of the man who accepts his son as a savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 declares that Jesus has been made to be our righteousness. God is our righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. And by the new creation, we have become the righteousness of God in him. But somebody might be asking, what is the righteousness of God? Well, it's the ability to stand in the Father's presence without the sense of guilt, condemnation, or inferiority. It is the ability to stand there as the very sons and daughters of God Almighty so that you can go boldly unto the throne of grace, make your petition just as Jesus would if he were here. Now, faith in the Father is not built upon the word of man, but upon his own word. Man's testimony to the truth of the word has its place, but it can't take the place of the word itself. The word is the Father speaking. It's as though the Master were here, now in person, and that word is taking his place. That word has given us life, and made us new creations. That word has sustained us and upheld us. It is the word of faith that proceeds from the very heart of the Father of faith. The word is a part of the Father himself. I feed on it. I breathe it into my spirit, and it is being built into my spirit consciousness. It's absolute integrity, it's life-giving equality has impregnated my very being. 
Man's word, like grass, withers. God's word, like himself, can never die. It can never lose its freshness, its power, its ability to recreate, to strengthen, and to give courage. You see, the word in the lips of faith becomes just like the word in Jesus' lips. The word in lips of doubt and fear is a dead thing. But in the lips of faith, it becomes life-giving and dominant. Through it, the sick are healed, Satan captives are set free. And this, this living word in the lips of faith is God's answer to the heart cry of man. Man's word may fascinate and satisfy reason for a time, but the heart demands the word of God. This word illumined by the Holy Spirit is God's light on life's pathway. The word is a part of himself. You can lean on the word as you would lean on him. You can rest in the word as you would rest in him. You can act on the word as you would act if he had just spoken to you. The word is always now, right now. Our modern psychological religions are children of the senses. They use the Bible and quote from it, but it's only man's literature to them. Their writings can't feed the hungry spirits of man. They simply entertain and thrill the people of the senses. Folks, these eternal spirits of, of ours crave the bread of God. Jesus is the bread of life. They that feed on him have no appetite for the theories of men. Don't waste time with the philosophies of men. There ain't no life in them. In him is life, and that life is our light. His word alone can answer the heart cry of man. Their words may answer the cry of lost, reason-ruled souls groping in the sense realm for life, but never the cry of the heart. Now, Jesus' bold and continual confession is our example. We are what he made us to be. Jesus confessed what he was. Sense knowledge could not understand it. We are to confess what we are in Christ. Men of the senses won't understand us. And to confess that you are redeemed, that your redemption is an actual reality, that you are delivered out of Satan's dominion and authority, that would be a daring confession to make. And to confess that you are an actual new creation created in Christ Jesus, that you are a partaker of the very nature and life of deity, that would amaze your friends. It isn't confessing it once, but a daily affirmation of your relationship to him, confessing your righteousness, confessing your ability to stand in his presence without the sense of guilt or inferiority. Dare to stand in the presence of sense knowledge facts and declare that you are what God says you are, glory to God. For instance, sense knowledge declares that I'm sick with an incurable illness. I confess that God laid that disease on Jesus and that Satan has no right to put it on me. That by his stripes I am healed. 
and I am to hold fast to my confession in the face of apparent self-knowledge contradiction. Self-knowledge says that it's not true, that I am confessing an untruth, but I am confessing what God says. You see, there are two kinds of truth. There's sense-knowledge truth and revelation truth. And they're pretty much opposed to each other. Now, I live in the new realm above the senses, so I hold fast to my confession that I am what the word says that I am. And suppose my senses have revealed the fact that I am in great need financially. Well, the word declares, my God shall supply every need of yours. And I call his attention to what the senses have intimated. And he knows that my expectations are from him. I refuse to be intimidated by sense evidences. I refuse to have my life governed by them. Because I know that greater is he that is in me than the forces that surround me. And the forces that oppose me are in the senses. The power that is in me is the Holy Spirit. And I know that spiritual forces are greater than the forces in the sense realm. And I maintain my confession of spiritual values, of spiritual realities, in the face of sense contradictions. Now, here's a couple of uh, confessions that uh, E.W. Kenyon wrote about that uh, of his experience. He said, after having prayed for one the other morning, she was satisfied that she was perfectly healed. But now the symptoms have returned and her heart is discerned. She wonders where the difficulty lies. And I asked this party, did you tell your husband when you met him at night that you were healed? No. You see, I wasn't sure yet. I didn't want to say anything until I was positive. But you had no pain. Was there any soreness, I asked. Oh, that all left, but you see, I have to be careful. My husband is skeptical, and I didn't want to tell him I was healed until I was sure. Well, you can already see where her difficulty lay. She didn't believe the word. Had she made her confession to her husband, the thing would never have come back. But she played into the hands of the enemy, and he restored the same symptoms that she had had and brought back the pain and soreness. This happened because she invited him, the devil, to do it. Had she dared to stand her ground on the word and hold fast to her confession that she was healed, he wouldn't have any ground to come back to her. Our faith and our unbelief is determined by our confession. Few of us realize the effect of our spoken word on our own heart or on our adversary. He hears us make our confession of failure, of sickness, of lack, and apparently he doesn't forget. And we unconsciously go down to the level of our confession. No one ever rises above it. If you confess sickness, it develops sickness in your system. If you confess doubt, the doubts become stronger. If you confess lack of finances, it stops the money from coming in. And you say, I don't understand that. No, because most of us live in the sense realm and spiritual things are very indistinct. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 has to become a constant reality. It says, having then a great high priest 
who hath passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Our confession is that the word cannot be broken, that what the Father says is true. When we doubt the Father, we're doubting his word. And we, when we doubt his word, it's because we believe something else that is contrary to that word. Our confidence may be in the arm of the flesh. It might be in medicine. It might be in institutions. But whatever our confidence is in, if it contradicts the word, it destroys our faith life. It destroys our prayers to it, and it brings us back into bondage. Every person who walks by faith will have testings. They don't come from the Father, folk. They come from the adversary, the devil. He is refusing to allow you to escape him. You become dangerous to the adversary when you become strong enough to resist him and when you have learned to trust in the ability of the Father to meet your every need. And when that becomes a reality in your consciousness, the adversary, the devil, is defeated. But as long as he can confuse the issue and keep you in the state of flux, you are at an disadvantage. Listen, I'm telling you these things for one purpose. To strengthen your confidence in the word. To make you know that no word from God is void of power or can go by default. There isn't power in all the universe to void one statement of fact in this word. He said, God said, I watch over my word to perform it. Jeremiah 1 and 12. And again in Romans 10 and 11, what's Whosoever believeth on him shall not be put to shame. Thank you, Lord God. Your confidence is in that unbroken living word, and you hold fast to your confession in the face of every assault of the enemy. Now, this is uh, Philippians chapter 1, 28 in the ESV. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Second Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 15, ESV. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Folks, you take your position in Christ, that you are more than a conqueror, that no matter what the testing might be in God, he's not going to let you fail. You are not standing on sense evidence. You're not standing on the faith of other people. You are standing squarely upon his own word. Your confidence is not in the prayers of others, but in this unchanging, unbreakable word, and you refuse to allow your lips to destroy the effectiveness of that word in your case. Those circumstances that are around you there, you hold fast to your confession though it would appear as though the prayer was never answered. It is your quiet assurance in his word that gives you the supremacy over your adversary. And you know that all authority is in the name of Jesus. 
that every demon and every disease and every circumstance has to bow to that name. Glory to God. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 through 11. Wherefore also God highly exalted him and gave unto him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, my, my, my. You see that the name of Jesus has all authority, and you have a legal right to use that name in every circumstance. You're his son, his own very child, and you have come to him in the name of Jesus for this need, and he's under obligation to see that you are not put to shame. He is under obligation to make his word good. Somebody said to me this morning, God has tied himself up by his word. He can't fail us and he can't ignore us. So we need to hold fast to our confession and never, never cower for a moment, no matter how sense knowledge may produce evidence to the contrary. You're not standing on sense evidence. Feelings and appearances have no place here. This is God's field and God's alone. We walk in the light of our testimony. And our faith never goes beyond our confession. The word becomes real only as we confess its reality. And the reason for this is we walk by faith and not by sight. Sense knowledge would confess only what it had seen, heard, or felt. The people who are seeking experiences always walk by the senses. Our testimony of the reality of the word is feared by Satan. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, that this reacts on our heart just as doubt spoken by the lips reacts on your heart. You talk of your doubts and your fears and you destroy your faith. You talk of the ability of the Father that's yours and fill your lips with praise for answers to prayers that you have asked. And this reaction upon the heart is tremendous. Faith grows by leaps and bounds. You talk about your trials and your difficulties of your lack of faith, of your lack of money, and faith shrivels, loses its virility. Your whole spirit life shrinks. You study about what you are in Christ and then confess it boldly. You dare to act on the word in the face of sense knowledge opposition, regardless of appearance. You take your stand you make your confession and you hold fast to it in the face of apparent impossibilities. You see, faith doesn't ask for possible things. Faith is demanding the impossible. Prayer is never for the possible, but always for the thing that is out of reason. You know, it's God who is at work with us, in us, and for us. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? Romans 8 and 32. You see, you're launching out into the realm of the impossible, just like Abraham did when he asked for a son. You're not asking for something you can do for yourself, but for something that is beyond reason. And then you refuse to take counsel with fear 
or to entertain a doubt. And the hardest battles that I have ever fought have been along this line. The greatest battles I have ever won have been those that seemed the most impossible, where there was the greatest opposition, where reason discredited my faith. And I held fast to my confession, and the word was made good. Praise God. Confess your dominion over disease in Jesus' name. Never be frightened by any condition, no matter how forbidding, how impossible the case might be. It might be cancer, tuberculosis, or an accident in which death seems to be the master of the situation. But you never give in. You know you and God are masters of the situation. You never for a moment lose your confession of your supremacy over the works of the adversary. This disease, this calamity is not of God. It has but one source, and that's Satan. And in Jesus' name, you are master. You have taken Jesus' place and you're acting in his stead. You fearlessly take your position. Confess your ability in Christ to meet any emergency. Glory be to God. And if you'll always remember that Jesus met defeat and conquered it. You're facing defeat everywhere as a master. Don't let down. Keep your solid front. And here's Way's translation of Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 28. Let your life as members of one communion be worthy of the glad tidings of the Messiah so that whether I do come and see you or whether I must still be afar and only hear news of you, I may know that you are standing firm, animated by one spirit, may know that with united soul you are working strenuously shoulder to shoulder for the faith of the glad tidings, may know that you are not cowed one whit by your adversaries. Their failure to daunt you is clear evidence, an actual sign from God. For them that their destruction is imminent, but for you that salvation is yours. That solid front spoken of in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 5 says this, Yet in spirit I am present with you and am delighted to witness your good discipline and the solid front presented by your faith in Christ. Hey, is that solid front presented to your enemy? You can't be conquered. Your spirit's whispering, Nay, in all these things I am more than a conqueror. Every disease is of the adversary. All kinds of sin are of the adversary. All opposition to the glad tidings is of the adversary. God and I are victors. Greater is he that is in me than this opposition or this disease. There's no need that is greater than my God. There's no lack that he can't meet. This indomitable will that God has wrought in you cannot be overwhelmed or conquered, praise God. You remember what you are. You are a new creation. You are a branch of the vine. You are an heir of God. You are united with him. You and he are one, and he is the greater part of that one. There is no such thing as conquering God when his instrument refuses to admit that the enemy can overwhelm him because you are that instrument. Philippians 4 and 11 says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content.
You said that you could not. And the moment that you said it, you were whipped. You said that you did not have faith. And doubt arose like a giant and bound you up. You are imprisoned with your own words. You talked failure and failure held you in bondage. Proverbs 6 and 2 says, Thou art snared with the words of thy mouth. Thou art taken captive with the words of thy mouth. Folks, few of us realize that our words dominate us. A young man said, I was never whipped until I confessed I was whipped. Another said, the moment I began to make a bold, confident confession, a new courage that I had never known took possession of me. Another young woman said, my lips have been a constant curse. I have never been able to get the mastery of my lips. And she said, I always speak my mind. And she has few friends. Only pity causes people to go see her. Her lips have always been her curse. It isn't so bad speaking your mind if you have the mind of Christ. But as long as you have a mind dominated by the devil, few people care to hear your mind. Never talk failure. Never talk defeat. Never for a moment acknowledge that God's ability can't put you over. Become God's inside-minded, remembering that greater is he that is in you than any force that can come against you. And remembering that God created the universe with words. That words are more mighty than tanks or bombs, more mighty than the army or the navy. Learn to use words so they'll work for you and be your servants. Learn that your lips can make you a millionaire or a pauper, wanted or despised, a victor or a captive. And your words can be filled with faith that'll stir heaven and make men want you. Remember that you can fill your words with love so they'll melt the coldest heart and warm and heal the broken and discouraged. In other words, your words can become what you wish them to be. You can make them rhyme. And you can fill them with rhythm. And you can fill them with hatred, with poison. Or you can make them breathe the very fragrance of heaven. And now you can see vividly what your confession can mean to your own heart. And your faith will never register above the words of your lips. I'm going to tell you something. It's not so bad to think a thing as it is to say it. Thoughts may come. And persist in staying, but you refuse to put them into words and they die unborn. And so cultivate the habit of thinking big things and then learn to use words that will react upon your own spirit and make you a conqueror. Jesus' confessions prove to be reality. Face confessions create reality. Jesus confessed that he was the light of the world and he was it. The rejection of him has plunged the world into a new darkness. He said he was the bread from heaven, and it's true. The people who have fed upon his words have never suffered want. His words build faith as we act on them. Let them live in us. His words were filled with himself as we act on them. They fill us with Christ. 
His words feed faith and cause it to grow in power in us. The believer's word should be born of love and filled with love. Our lips are taking the place of his. Our words should never bruise or hurt, but should bless and heal. Because Jesus was the way, the reality, and the life. And we're taking his place, showing the way, confessing the reality, and enjoying the life. You'll never enjoy what you are in Christ until his love rules your lips. Until we know our legal rights in the family of God, we will never become outstanding in our faith life. We should know that the Bible is made up of two legal documents, the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, and that Jesus' death was a legal death to meet humanity's legal needs, and that his sacrifice, his substitutionary work was accepted by the Supreme Court of the universe, and that man has a legal right to take Jesus Christ as his Savior and confess him as his Lord, which gives him a legal right to eternal life, the nature of God. And that makes him a son. And as a son, he has a legal right to his father's protection and care. He has a legal right to all that Jesus purchased for him in his redemptive work. He has a legal right to the use of the name of Jesus in prayer. And when dealing with demoniacal forces, he has a legal right to the Holy Spirit's indwelling. All promises and statements of fact in the word of his, he has a legal right to a perfect redemption from Satan's dominion, from sickness and disease, from poverty and want. And he has a legal right to stand in the Father's presence because Jesus has become his legal righteousness and he has legally become the righteousness of God in Christ. And he has a legal right to heaven as his home. And this takes prayer out of the realm of doubt and puts it into the realm of absolute certainty. Glory to God. Well, folks, I'm out of time. I hope this uh, helps you in your prayer life and in your faith. So get in the Word, read the Word, and believe what the Word says and confess the Word out of your mouth. God bless you. We'll see you next time. God willing. My thirsting soul, pure as water, made me whole. Let your streams of mercy flow, oh Jesus. I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For oh, your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus.